History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Surprise, everyone, this is not the episode 50 AMA. Instead, this is the third annual History of Persia holiday special. Unlike last time we did one of these, it's actually been almost a whole year since the last holiday special, so I will reiterate how these work. Once every calendar year, I set aside a topic on the main feed for a holiday and each year I try to do a different holiday. That means that this special, much like many of the holidays I cover, will wander through the calendar rather than falling on a specific date. The last two installments have focused on the Achaemenid aspects of two Iranian holidays. In December of 2019, I had a discussion of foods and feasting, to celebrate a combination of American Thanksgiving and Iranian Shabayalda. In the spring of 2020, we saw my celebration of Achaemenid Nowruz, the Persian New Year. 2021 marks the first celebration of a non-Persian holiday, but we are still firmly rooted in the realm of Achaemenid history. For those that do not know, today is the celebration of Purim, the Jewish festival that roughly translates from Hebrew as the Feast of Lots. The holiday stems entirely from the biblical book of Esther, which tells the story of a Jewish queen of Persia saving her people from a cruel Persian official called Haman's plot to commit genocide. For those in the know, feel free to boo and hiss to yourselves throughout the episode. While that sounds like a dark premise for a festival, it is actually one of the most upbeat occasions in the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, meaning its holidays shift around dramatically in the standard 365.25-day solar calendar, 
which is why this episode is sort of last minute. It's very early this year and snuck up on me. To accompany this celebration, Patreon supporters at the $5 Great King tier and above will have access to a bonus recording of the full Book of Esther, posted immediately after this episode. As a reminder, there is also lots of free content up on Patreon right now, including my reading of Zoroaster's Gothas, and, for a limited time, my review of the movie 300. Trying to make comparisons for my largely Western Christian-influenced audience, I guess it's best described as a combination of secular Easter and Halloween. But really, the best comparisons are probably to Middle Eastern spring celebrations like Nowruz, in that it doesn't have any of the major downers associated with its Christian counterparts, and has way more to do with eating and drinking. Traditions include giving gift baskets of food and drink called Mishlok Menot, a celebratory meal, delicious cookies called Hamantaschen, named for the villain of the story, reading the Book of Esther in synagogues, booing and making noise when Haman is mentioned, traditional prayers, dressing in costume, and comedic plays telling the story of Esther. Oh, and my personal favorite, burning Haman in effigy. So what does this have to do with everyone's favorite rulers of the known world? Basically everything. The story of Esther that Purim celebrates is set in the Achaemenid palace at Susa, and Esther is portrayed as the Achaemenid queen. Of course, everything is not as the story would have the reader believe. As always, I'm going to do my best to tromp through everyone's religion equally. Esther last came up on the podcast in episode 39 in my discussion of Achaemenid women because it is considered a valuable account of the Achaemenid court, even if it isn't necessarily about true events. Modern scholars are pretty much unanimous in their assessment of Esther as an ancient novella. The fact of the matter is that the major characters fill roles that are documented in Achaemenid history by many other sources, but the characters themselves, aside from the king, sort of, only appear in this one place. It also portrays a very Greek and Judean understanding of marriage and social relations, which is not reflected in other accounts of Achaemenid Persia. Additionally, it follows the format of the ancient romance, most famously seen in the so-called Alexander Romance of the later Roman Empire. It is generally reserved for historical fiction and dramatization. Most prominent, as I said, is the issue of marriage. The plot hinges on Esther's selection to replace the divorced and dismissed Queen Vashti after she is elevated from her status as concubine. Of course, we know from the previous discussion of Persian women that this isn't how any of that worked. If the King of Kings wasn't feeling it with one wife, there was absolutely nothing in the way to marry another woman except ethnicity. By all evidence, the royal wives of Achaemenid Persia had to be Persian. So a main crux of the story revolves around Vashti being dismissed, which wouldn't have been needed and could have triggered a political incident, as well as him marrying Esther, which would have been seemingly impossible. 
There's also the issue of Haman's desire for anti-Jewish genocide as the main conflict, which is entirely antithetical to Achaemenid provincial policies, which preferred to allow subjects to practice their own cultures. At least in this case, it is not actually portrayed as official policy, but the desire of one advisor's personal grudge and hatred. So if this isn't a historical document written by the character Mordecai as tradition holds, then when was it written? Fortunately, scholars have reached a basic consensus on that too. It has pretty distinct Greek influences, especially in the way that the harem is characterized, which is a good sign that it was the product of the Hellenistic period. But we can get even firmer. It was probably written by the end of the 2nd century BCE, when Judea was under the rule of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV. Antiochus is portrayed as having huge ego problems in the Jewish sources, in that he was one of the first rulers to demand that they acknowledge him as a god. This characteristic is projected onto the Judeo-Persian relationship in Esther. The Book of Daniel does the same thing with multiple pseudo-historical kings, and I just can't stress this enough. The Persians did not believe that their king was a god, and no Persian king ever portrayed themselves that way. Kings who do that make a big deal about it in royal propaganda, and we'd probably notice. The final version of Esther probably wasn't fully formed for another few decades after the Maccabees threw off Seleucid rule and Judea was re-established under the Hasmonean dynasty. If all of these terms are unfamiliar, I recommend Gary Stevenson's History in the Bible podcast for very detailed information, and eventually we will reach this narrative as part of the history of Persia. The Masoretic text, the official Hebrew form of the Jewish canon, includes a slightly longer version of Esther from the ancient Greek Septuagint translation, and it's the Masoretic version that you see in most Bibles today. Esther isn't nearly as direct an allegory for Antiochus IV as Daniel is, but clearly has some of the same traits of persecution under a god-king that you see in other Hellenistic books. If the story, which ends with the establishment of the holiday Purim, is historical fiction, then it does leave an open question as to where the holiday came from. It's a question made more difficult because we don't really know when it started. Evidently, sometime in the early or pre-Hellenistic period, because it was wrapped into the story of Esther, but we don't have any detailed account of how it was celebrated in those early centuries. Given the general practices described in later literature up to the present, of upbeat celebration, feasting, singing, gift-giving, etc., the most compelling explanation is spring New Year's festivals like Nauruz or the Babylonian Akitu. These were festivals of celebration and rejuvenation in Iran and Babylon, where there were significant Jewish diasporas. Mix in some regionalization when the Jewish exiles went back to Judea, later celebrations over the defeat of Antiochus, and the folklore surrounding Esther, and you've got yourself a plausible origin for Purim. 
It was tonally different and far enough away in the calendar from the existing Jewish spring celebration of Passover to both fill a cultural niche, but not overshadow the more theologically important event. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Today, I am going to tell the story of Esther and give some of my own historical commentary along the way. First, though, I think we need some dramatis personae. Obviously, we have Esther herself, a Jewish concubine in the Persian harem who is elevated to the position of queen at the outset of the story. Whether or not she existed in any form at all is debatable, but her initial role is certainly possible. Jewish families did have ties to the Babylonian high society and may have been positioned in a way that they would be noticed by the king in the Achaemenid period. Then we have the great king himself, identified in Esther as Ahasuerus. There has always been debate about which Achaemenid this is supposed to refer to. Many ancient and medieval translators thought it was one of the many Artaxerxes, maybe Artaxerxes the first, maybe the second. In the much more historically accurate book of Ezra, Ahasuerus is the name used for Xerxes, transliterating Kishayarsa into Ahasuerus. That makes Xerxes the most likely identity for Esther's Ahasuerus, and that's the reason I'm celebrating Purim around this point in our narrative. However, 
it would also make Xerxes a bizarrely common stock character. Ezra makes it clear that he had almost no interaction with Judea, but Ahasuerus is used in the apocryphal book of Tobit and as the father of Daniel's ahistorical Darius the Mede. That's a point in the favor of Artaxerxes, as all of these books, beside Ezra, were written in a Greek milieu and the Greeks were fascinated by Artaxerxes II, something that will come up later in the podcast. For the purposes of storytelling today, I'm just going to use the name Ahasuerus, because ultimately, he's mostly a composite character for all of the most decadent Persian kings. Next up, we have Mordecai, Esther's elder cousin who raised her in Susa. He's clearly some kind of leader in the local Jewish community. Then there's Haman, our antagonist and an advisor to King Ahasuerus. He is described as an Agadite, an ethnic term which only appears in this one instance. It may be an alternate name for the Amalekites, who clashed with the early Hebrews in Canaan, whose tribal name had become Hebrew shorthand for anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic by the Hellenistic period. Interestingly, the early Greek translation of the Septuagint calls him a Macedonian, which makes it a much clearer stand-in for the conflict with the Macedonian king, Antiochus IV. And finally, an honorable mention for Queen Vashti, Ahasuerus' wife at the outset of the story. She really isn't a main character, but she has been the subject of a lot of scrutiny and historical interpretation that mostly amounts to her name doesn't correspond with any known Persian queen. As I've stated already, her dismissal doesn't make sense in the context of what we know of Persian marriage, but neither does any of the situation surrounding her. Traditionally, she has been seen as wicked, and more modernly as an almost feminist figure, for reasons that will be clear in just a minute. The book opens with a feast celebrating Ahasuerus' third year on the throne, and as part of the festivities, the king orders his wife Vashti to, quote, appear wearing the royal crown. However, Vashti refuses the request and infuriates the king. Worse still, Ahasuerus's eunuch advisors tell him that if this is allowed to stand, then Vashti's insolence may inspire the other women in society to <gasps> disobey their husbands. Vashti had to be dismissed from both Ahasuerus's favor and his company, or else Persia might have experienced feminism a few millennia too early. Right off the bat, there is an assumption that there really is no evidence for. It is assumed by the author of Esther that Persian women would not have dined and feasted with their male counterparts at this celebration. Not only is there no evidence for this sex segregation in the Persian record, but examples like that of Artistane and Irdabama in the Persepolis archive suggest that the opposite was true. Not only could the royal women dine with the men, but they could even host feasts themselves in the king's place. Even forgiving that heir, Vashti's refusal to appear at the feast seems out of character, just based on the text in Esther, 
However, commentaries on the book usually interpret appear wearing the royal crown as wearing the royal crown and absolutely nothing else. This interpretation to appear in the nude is almost as old as the story itself, so it's probably correct. And that would be cause for one of the Duke Sheesh to be insulted. However, it's also something that would have been practically beyond the pale for even the king to demand. The Persian nobility prized the ability to go unseen. The robes for both sexes were heavy and flowing. Women were noted for traveling in litters with the curtains drawn. Exhibition was not a way to flaunt prestige and beauty. It was reducing oneself. Theseus comments on how Statera, wife of Artaxerxes II, caused a stir just by traveling with the curtains open on her litter. Rather than risking a women's uprising, Ahasuerus was at risk of embarrassing himself through his wife. This is, however, a very Greek trope and points to the Hellenistic influence, describing the Persian court as a place of sex and decadence. Following this flawed premise, Vashti is dismissed, and Ahasuerus called for beautiful young virgins to be sought as her replacement. It is deliberately phrased to highlight the decadence of the royal court, but realistically, those would have been the rough requirements for eligible royal bachelorettes. Esther was one of the young women presented for this role by her cousin and caretaker, Mordecai and she was taken into the royal harem, where she was given maids, cosmetics, and training on court etiquette. After one year of this, each girl was brought before the king in turns, and would be dismissed if the king did not request her by name after this initial introduction. When Esther came in, Ahasuerus was immediately smitten and made her the new queen. This section seems to conflate two plausible practices. One is seeking out potential concubines from the eligible women of the empire. In general, these would have been young women of high status and, yes, probably virgins. In general, when dealing with hereditary monarchies, it is best to keep as few men in the picture as possible to minimize issues of succession, and Persia was no different. The other is a bridal show. Several cultures have practiced similar events in which potential marriage candidates are brought before the king all at once or in quick succession. However, Esther is repeatedly described in association with the eunuchs who oversaw the concubines during the selection process. As I've stressed before, pool of concubines and the pool of wives would have been entirely separate groups of women. Eunuchs feature prominently in Esther, and it may be that their role is emphasized in a display of foreign decadence, but castrated men did make up the bulk of the civil administration by the end of the Achaemenid Empire. The phenomenon of eunuch advisors and administrators warrants its own episode, which I've penciled in for some time down the line. There's a lot of wars between now and then. It's crucial as a plot point, that Mordecai and Esther conspire to hide Esther's religious background. 
but her need for etiquette and training would be an immediate tell that she was not Persian. Also, there would be no need to keep her Judaism a secret in the Achaemenid period, as even the biblical histories have nothing but praise for the Persian regime, and describe almost unconditional support from the crown. When Esther's turn before the king came, Mordecai was waiting outside of the palace and overheard two of the king's advisors plotting to assassinate Ahasuerus. Mordecai reveals this to Esther and after she tells him the good news, and she passes it on to her new royal husband. That might have soured the wedding night a bit, but probably less than his murder. Two eunuchs were investigated and hanged for their treason. All in all, this checks out. We'll see soon enough in our narrative that there always seems to be some plot for rebellion or assassination floating around in the Achaemenid court after Xerxes returns from Greece. The detail that they were hanged is interesting, but probably more evidence that the author was familiar with the execution practices of the 3rd century than we are from the written evidence. Achaemenid and Greek records alike record crucifixion, impalement, or bizarre and torturous deaths, but never hung by the neck until dead. However, those same sources only ever discuss the execution of nobles. It's probable that different executions were meted out to members of other social classes. That's certainly how it worked in Babylonian law, which was the foundation of Achaemenid law, and in many other unrelated cultures. For non-nobles, around the court at least, that method seems to be hanging. Now, stick that incident in the back of your head because it is important, but won't come up again until later. It has nothing to do with what happens next. Turn the very thin page, and the story jumps ahead eight years into Esther's queenship, to the twelfth year under King Ahasuerus. After his other advisors were executed, Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite to the position of vizier, or chief advisor. Haman was presented to the king's subjects from the main gate at Susa, and they all bowed except for one, Mordecai. Haman was furious about this act of disrespect and interrogated Mordecai for the offense afterward. Mordecai said that he did not bow because he was a Jew. Once again, this is a very out-of-place conflict. Up to this point in history, the Jewish people did not have any conflict between religion and acknowledging worldly governments. It is, in fact, encouraged in other parts of the Bible. Isaiah and Ezra, in particular, emphasize how the Achaemenids were favored by God. However, the issue of bowing before Antiochus IV, especially the giant statue of Antiochus erected in Jerusalem, makes for a very clear allegory if you know the context. It's even more clear in the Greek version, where it's Haman the Macedonian. Haman goes on to decide that imprisoning, torturing, or killing someone who offended him was beneath his station, for some reason. Instead, he plots to commit genocide and kill all of the Jewish people. I'm not at all clear on the logic here, but history has shown that genocidal megalomaniac anti-Semites don't usually use logic. Haman and the other advisors cast lots, called Purim, 
to decide when they will be allowed to make a request of the king. Haman's request is set on the 13th day of the Jewish month of Adar, almost a full year later. When that day came, Haman went to Ahasuerus and made his request, on the basis that the Jews did not obey the law, without specifying what laws. To sweeten the deal, he offers the king a bribe of 10,000 talents of silver to encourage him to approve this genocide. This is both a laughable and fantastical amount of treasure. It was the net worth of whole provinces, about one-twelfth the total value of the Persepolis treasury when Alexander conquered Persia, but only of Persepolis. There were treasuries across the empire, in Egypt, Damascus, Lydia, Bactria, Babylon, and other cities. The King of Kings had the resources of the known world at his command. 10,000 talents is meant to display the fantastical wealth offered by Haman, but to the historical great king, it was a rounding error. To give some perspective on that, it was about 258 tons of silver. With the king's permission and royal seal, Haman did issue orders that all the Jews in the empire should be killed, and a proclamation went out to all the provinces. This promptly threw the city of Susa, which heard about it first, into chaos. The Jewish population panicked, lamented, and went into ritual mourning for the oncoming death of their culture. Mordecai rushed to the palace dressed in sackcloth mourning clothes, and Esther's servants noticed her cousin at the gate. She sent him presentable clothes so that he would be allowed into the palace, and one of the servants acted as a go-between for the cousins as Mordecai explained Haman's evil plan. Of course, Esther was shocked and appalled that the vizier had ordered the massacre of her people, and Mordecai warned her that not even her position could save her from this nightmare. Naturally, she wanted to intervene with Ahasuerus, but even she could not just interrupt court proceedings or burst into the king's apartments without permission. It's not actually clear how strict that taboo was in practice, just we don't have great records from the Achaemenid court, but the goal of making the king of kings completely unapproachable is well documented in Greek sources as well, so Esther's problem is plausible. She sent Mordecai to gather the local Jewish community to publicly mourn and fast in an act of protest while she went and waited at the edges of the court to try and get the king's attention. Fortunately, Ahasuerus was still infatuated and noticed her immediately. Esther takes this opportunity not to request that he stay his order of mass execution, but to ask the king and Haman to politely join her for a banquet, and the king did grant that request. Ahasuerus and Haman agreed to join her the next day, still unaware of Esther's Jewishness. Haman left court in high spirits, pleased that he had both the favor of Ahasuerus and now Esther, but he saw Mordecai leading the Jews in their fast at the palace gate and changed his mind. It turns out he really did want Mordecai in particular to suffer, but only in addition to the mass genocide of his people. 
so he ordered an oversized gallows to be constructed just for Mordecai outside his own house. That night, King Ahasuerus was restless and asked for the royal records to be brought to him. Going through these records, he noticed that this man named Mordecai had functionally saved his life eight years earlier, but that no reward was recorded for that service. He asked the eunuchs who maintained the royal records what the payment had been, and they told him that there had been no payment. Immediately, the king is kind of embarrassed by this oversight and asks the servants which court officials are still there so he can assign someone to deliver Mordecai's reward. But also, it's the middle of the night, so the actual court space is empty, save for one high official who had just arrived. Wouldn't you know it, Haman had just shown up to dot his I's and cross his T's with the king before giving official orders to have Mordecai hanged for crimes against the court. The king has Haman brought up to his chamber, but rather than hearing about whatever business this vizier had come for in the first place, Ahasuerus tells him that there is a man who the king wishes to honor, someone who should receive royal robes and a horse from the king's own stable with noble saddling both of which are documented in Greek accounts as signs of royal favor. Haman kind of taken aback by this late-night assignment, which was well beneath his pay grade, asked the king, quote, Whom would the king wish to honor more than myself? And the king tells him, Take these to the Jew, Mordecai, who sits outside the main gate, and leave out nothing which I have said. Haman says, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Then he ran out of the gate and back to his house, where his wife says something to the effect of, If this is the same Mordecai, we are doomed. The next day, Haman was still at home, fretting over this new development, when some eunuchs arrived from the court to escort him to Esther's banquet. He followed them out, probably expecting a bit of a reprieve with the king and the definitely not Jewish queen. Then, at the banquet table, after she'd buttered him up with a few glasses of wine, the king asks if he can grant Esther any special requests, and she says that yes, yes he can. She proceeded to beg for a reprieve for her people, without naming them saying that if they were to be enslaved, she could have held her tongue, but she must speak out against this atrocity, even if it were the king's own orders. Ahasuerus, who is clearly not the most attentive ruler, is aghast that someone was plotting to murder many, many people, including his beloved Esther, and asks who the culprit was. Esther tells him, This wicked Haman! Ahasuerus got up, furious, and actually had to leave the room to get some air in the garden outside, prepared to pass brutal judgment against Haman. The vizier begged Esther to intervene for his life, and I'll just read the book for this next part. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman had thrown himself on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, 
the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, stands at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. So with more than a bit of poetic justice, Haman was killed. Ahasuerus took the vizier's seal and bestowed it on Mordecai, raising him to the position of chief advisor. Esther then made one last request to the king to repeal Haman's plan to kill all of the Jews, which he did. Newly instilled with royal authority, Mordecai himself issued the decree that went out across the empire to save his people. Saved from this apparent doom, the Jewish people went out and celebrated an impromptu festival. But the Bible does not let us forget that this is an ancient feel-good story. It doesn't end there, but goes on to describe how the Jews rose up with Mordecai's permission and slaughtered 500 people in Susa alone in righteous moral vengeance against those who had conspired against them. Morbid, sure, but they were plotting genocide, so I'm not going to complain that much. When all was said and done, the Jews of Susa celebrated the 13th and 14th days of the third month and rested on the 15th. In commemoration of those festivities, Esther and Mordecai declared that the Jews should annually celebrate the defeat of Haman, who had cast Purim to destroy them. The decree went out to all of the Jewish communities, and it is celebrated thus to this day. The End That's the story of Esther, or at least the story as informed by the historical record. From there, Esther, Mordecai, and the rest disappear into the mists of biblical history. Local Iranian Jewish tradition identifies a structure in modern Hamadan, Ekbadana in their time, as the tomb of Esther and Mordecai. First of all, I personally find it weird that the Queen of Persia was buried with her cousin, rather than in, you know, one of the royal tombs. But that aside... The building itself is not consistent with Achaemenid-style architecture or the building tools available in the Achaemenid period. Instead, it appears to be a Sassanid or early medieval structure of unknown purpose that gained a similar biblical or Quranic reputation in the Middle Ages to many other ancient sites. All of this is made more confusing by the fact that the site was quote-unquote, restored in the 14th century. This tradition of Esther and Mordecai's gravesite has never gained much traction in the wider Jewish diaspora. You may also have noticed that a certain biblical figure was missing from my story today. I didn't leave anyone out except for a few one-off eunuchs. Esther is just a strange entry into the canon as a book that doesn't even mention God. You can even see places where a typical Bible story would add some divine intervention. Things like Ahasuerus not being able to fall asleep, the instruction not to reveal their Judaism until the last minute, punishing Haman's descendants at the end, and of course, Ahasuerus' total devotion to Esther are all situations that other parts of the Bible would have attributed to capital G God. Not here, though. So happy Purim, everyone. Feast, drink, be cheery, 
and eat hamantaschen for me. Before you go, I just want to squeeze in one last reminder about the episode 50 AMA. It is coming next week, but I'll keep taking questions for as long as I can. There is a link to contact me in the episode description, or you can get to me in another of other ways. Email me at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. Go to the website, historyofpersiapodcast.com, or find me on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, I am at History of Persia Podcast, all strung together as one word. And on Twitter, it is at History of Persia. While you're on social media, take some time to share this episode or any other episode with your friends and followers to spread the word about the history of Persia. Nothing is as good for helping a podcast grow as word of mouth. That said, if you also want to support the podcast financially, there are two ways you can do that these days. Either a monthly subscription over on Patreon that can get you ad-free listening or access to my bonus episodes like my reading of Esther today, or one-time contributions through the main website where there are a number of buttons labeled one-time contribution. Until the AMA next week, thank you all so much for listening to The History of of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.